Hello and welcome to the second episode of this second series of Star Guitar. Thanks for any comments on last week's episode with Marika Hatman. They're very much appreciated. This week I welcome Ben Watt to the podcast. Ben is of course best known as one half of Everything But The Girl, the duo he and Tracy Thorne formed in 1982 after meeting at Hull University. Between 1984 and 1999 they released 10 albums, amassing millions of sales around the world. Missing, their biggest single, famously remixed by Todd Terry in 1995, sold 3 million copies alone. The duo's final album, Temperamental, was released in 1999 and they made their final public performance a year later. Prior to that career, however, both Ben and Tracy had already released music. Tracy is part of Marine Girls, perhaps best known as being one of Kurt Cobain's favourite bands, and Ben, who released an EP with Robert Wyatt and then albums as a solo artist. That solo career is what we focus on here, particularly North Marine Drive, his debut, released on Cherry Red in 1983, and its follow-up Pendra, which featured the former suede guitarist and record producer Bernard Butler. Ben and Bernard worked together again for Ben's third album, 2016's Fever Dream. In the interview, which we did in December last year at Ben's lovely home studio, we discuss all of this, as well as his new album, Storm Damage, his love of John Martin, performing live, working with David Gilmore, and of course, his numerous beautiful guitars. Here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hello there, my name is Ben Watt and you're listening to Star Guitar. I can see several beautiful guitars in my eye line at the moment in your wonderful home studio. Let's go right back to the beginning then and um, we'll come to these guitars afterwards. When was the first time that you remember really sort of seeing a guitar? My eldest brother, I was the youngest in the family by quite a way. Uh, My parents married twice and I grew up with all the half brothers and sisters from my mum's first marriage so there was like a nine year gap between me and my half brothers and sisters so I was always looking up to them and my oldest half brother had a beaten up acoustic that he didn't play because he preferred playing the piano and I think that was probably the first guitar I ever saw and picked up and um, he was all right with you uh, playing it it wasn't a yeah, possessive thing it was a sort of it was almost like a kind of family guitar right. anyone who fancied having a bash could you know, could could have a go. But I think that was probably the first thing I ever picked up. At that point, did you have any idea what you were, you know, doing with it? Did you have any sort of idols that you were trying to emulate or anything? Or was it just a, this thing makes a noise? Not really. I mean, I was, I was obsessed with music mm-hmm. from a, a very early age. I mean, my dad was a jazz musician um, and I grew up, as I say, with my brothers and sisters playing all sorts of music around the house. It was... You know, different rooms, different sounds. My dad was playing jazz downstairs. My oldest brother was playing Roy Harper. Other brothers had more mainstream tastes like James Taylor and Simon and Garfunkel. My sister was listening to Bowie and Lou Reed. And this was all kind of percolating through the house. And I, you know, I, I just was always looking to sit down at the piano and pick out chords, steal things off my dad, you know, pick things up off the radio. I was always interested, yeah. Do you remember the first thing that you learned to play? People often ask me that. And do you know what? I don't. I wasn't the kind of person who heard a song and needed to learn it. I was always much more interested in the kind of component parts of music. I just loved the sound of chords. And I think my dad had a lot of sheet music lying around because he was mainly an arranger. There was always old-fashioned sheet music. And I very quickly realised that songs could be broken down into four basic parts. There was the lyric, 
the melody, the chords, and then the rhythm or the arrangement that you yeah. chose. And it didn't matter whether you were looking at a Beatles song or a Bacharach song or a jazz standard. They all seemed to have the same basic bricks that you built from. And that interested me. Um, and I can just remember sitting down and just trying to pick out chords and playing chords next to each other and hearing them sound nice. I, I, I never really wanted to emulate anyone. I just liked the sound of okay. sound of music. You know? So was writing your own songs quite a, an early thing? Quite quickly, yeah. yeah. I was writing stuff. Rubbish, obviously. <laughs> um, no experience to sing of. I, I think I probably, maybe I learned a couple of... Elton John songs on the piano but it was a, I think it was a bit later that I decided to to focus on the guitar maybe sort of 15 is that 16, 15 16 okay. probably yeah so pretty quick then between that and you releasing your debut album as you what 19 I was when, a quick learner yeah <laughs> were you 19 when uh, North yeah. Marine Drive came out yeah so quite yeah a quick learner but maybe maybe sort of not being bogged down with um so many other people's songs was a enabling kind of thing, you know, that you weren't yeah. were creating something of your own. I think, I mean, I can remember being very into, I remember that sort of conflict I had because it was, you know, punk and post-punk, but also I had this very rich kind of musical upbringing. And I can remember situations where I remember going to see George Benson play because my uh, one of my relations had some tickets that they couldn't use. And I saw George Benson play at the Albert Hall. Um, and I think the same week I was going to like the Nashville midweek, you know, to see. I, m- I remember sort of like the Pretenders and Factory Records nights and all that kind of stuff. So there was always this kind of clash of worlds. And on Sundays, my dad used to take me to the jazz pub where we grew up, which was down in Barnes in southwest London, the um, the Bull's Head, which is really famous yeah. South London jazz club. Th- those are probably my earliest music memories of live music, standing on the fire escape as a kid with a bag of crisps, watching jazz from, like, really young. What was the first song that you kind of remember writing and you thought, that's good, this is something else now? I had a band at school and we did a couple of like school gigs. Uh, I remember they they went quite well and then the band split up and I was getting towards the end of my sixth form and I had to decide what I wanted to do. And I started to get really jealous because there was a club had opened in Richmond in Surrey um, and a lot of the, the guys in the bands from the local art college were getting gigs there. And I remember that was the first time I felt quite jealous of something, thinking that that's something I need to be doing. And I used to go and watch some of those bands play. Um, and I, I got myself speaking to the guy who, who did the promoting there, who ended up being Mike Allway. Well, he was Mike Allway. <laughs> he didn't end up becoming... He was Mike Allway. Um, but he ended up becoming A&R at Cherry Red quite famously. Okay. And I went up to him and I just said, I'd really like to play. And he said, well, what do you sound like? And I, I hadn't got any songs at that point. And I said, oh, I sound a bit like a cross between the Girotti Column and John Martin and Joy Division. And he went, sounds really interesting. I'll, I'll give you a ring. It me does, yeah. I'll give you a ring. <laughs> so um, he called me about a day later. He said, yeah, no, I think I've got something for you. Could you play in 10 days' time? Um, we've got a band playing uh, in midweek. I don't know who they are. They're called the Thompson Twins. <laughs> and um, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll play. And I literally went home, and in t- my parents were away, I remember. I, don't, I can't remember where they were, but I remember I was, my grandmother was in the house. And um, I just commandeered the sitting room, and I plugged my guitar through my dad's hi-fi system. And I wrote 10 songs in 10 days um, and did my first gig. <laughs> the confidence is, uh, is still... The stupidity. 
<laughs> is there a fine line between the two? Um, that's amazing. What were, were did anything come of those well, ten the songs? Thing is, What's among them? All of them are rubbish. <laughs> Seriously, they were all rubbish. Apart from one, which I think I would still, if I could remember all of it, I might even think about still playing it. And the thing was, I was I was quite conflicted at that point. Part of me had this kind of fascination in in jazz chords and in that kind of folk blues thing that John Martin was doing and George Benson, because you can hear that in my early playing. Absolutely. But at the same time, I'd, I'd recently got really into Joy Division and had seen them play live. And that was like another world opening up to me, completely kind of skeletal rock music. And I, I remember being obsessed by Barney Albrecht for, for a few months and the way that they used to play just uh, the bass and the guitar in Joy Division, they didn't play chords. They just played uh, intermingled lines, you know, almost yeah. like, a, like a string quartet would play, you know. And I'd never seen anything like that before. I thought that was um, that you could do a song without actual chords was really interesting yeah. to me. So I started to write a few songs which were kind of like a mixture of lines and... Let, let, hang on, I'll play you this. Okay, brilliant. Well, this... Um, when I did my first EP, um, uh, well, the Summer Into Winter EP, a lot of the, the songs on that, they're all... Um, so, like, you get, um, like, Walter and John. Mm-hmm. To me, it's basically a Joy Division line, but with John Martin delay. So it's... I've heard that song so many times and I haven't thought of it like that before. Yeah. Um, it is. Without that without that delay yeah. and with a really tight sort of yeah. eight-beat drums behind exactly. it, it would be a Joy Division song. So that was my kind of, you know, the clash of ideas I had at the beginning. What were you using for delay at that point then? If you... I had an, um, I bought an Evans Echo Pet. Right. Which was like a really kind of basic bucket delay which I bought from a record shop in a music shop in Kingston because I'd seen John Martin play on the TV that was a big moment for me I think one of those rock goes to college kind of things and I'd seen him play on his own on stage in front of a student audience and I thought it was so cool like all the sounds he was getting and I was just watching it thinking how is he doing that and I I realized that it was delay and I went down to the guitar shop and I said I want to pedal like yeah John Martin and they said well he uses like Echoplex and Wem Copycat and all that kind of stuff and they, they told me the cost of it and I said well I can't afford that and they said well look there's, here's a basic primitive digital delay it was and that's I bought the Evans Echo Pet You sort of play in the delay like an instrument almost is Yeah the, I was always was using it as a tempo for the songs that was always the way I'd play and then um, I think what happened was I started to gravitate from that to just playing you know chords basically I moved away from that kind of single lead line and ended up playing stuff like got a lot more of the kind of Joe Gilberto I really like growing up from my dad's record collection 
Um, Sorry, I'm just sort of sitting here beaming because, um, yeah, North Marine Drive was a very kind of big record for me in my late teens. I read about right. it in a magazine somewhere and um, asked for it for Christmas. And it oh, was right. out of print by this point. It was probably about 1997, 1998 right. or something. I couldn't, the record shops in my town didn't have it. Yeah, yeah. So I sent my parents on a treasure hunt across the record shops in North Wales right. to try and find me a copy of it. And um, that was when I got one. But yeah, um, so hearing you, hearing you play that is... Uh, it's just kind of wonderful. Oh, that, great. That, well, I have to, I mean, North Marine Drive, um, well, this guitar for a start, let's talk about this. This is, um, I think, the first guitar I bought for that gig I was talking about uh, at Snoopy's in Richmond, uh, run by Mike Orway. That was like a Framus Les Paul copy. Right. You know, classic sort of 70s copy guitar. And I quickly realised I didn't really like the sound of it very much. And I wanted, you know, hollow body kind of arch top kind of sound. And I went to another music shop, this time in Richmond, which isn't there anymore, called Potter's, where my dad used to buy all his jazz stuff. And in the back, they had some guitars. And this guitar that I'm playing now is the very guitar I bought that day, which is a Gretsch Clipper. 1962 and it's a it's it's very thin as yeah, you can yeah, see because yeah. basically it was their kind of budget guitar <laughs> and it, it you know it was basically for people who couldn't afford a proper Gretsch but I didn't know this at the time so it's kind of the similar shape to like a sort of Tennessee it's a, isn't it's it? a single pickup um so there's no kind of treble pickup you can't do any like lead lines on it it's really for like um sort of primitive jazz play yeah you know and it doesn't have much sustain because it's so thin but for my kind of playing, it became really useful because I was relying a lot on the delay. I didn't need a lot of sustain like on the guitar. It might get very complicated I mean. if you were... Yeah. Did you use that right through the record? Um, well, I used this um, on... The first time I used that was on the Summer Into Winter EP with Robert Wyatt. And then that I suddenly realised that's when I started to get that sound with the delay and the, and the chords and everything. Um, and then I, not long after that, I did... Um, North Marine Drive, same guitar, um, still with the Evans Echo Pet pedal. And at, by that time, I discovered Nick Drake. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody knows Nick Drake now, but seriously, at the time, nobody was aware of who he was. I only found out about him because a friend uh, who I ran into at, at university in my first year had an older brother who, and he'd nicked the fruit tree box set, which had come out in the late 70s. Yeah. And he had it at university, and I borrowed it off him and was blown away by, by that record. But I can remember mentioning the name Nick Drake to journalists, to, to friends of mine. Nobody really knew who he was. I, I was given a, my first radio session, still while I was at university in this same period, by Mark Radcliffe, who was... Um, he started his career at, at Piccadilly in, yeah. in Manchester, and he was just a young guy doing, like, late-night show. Um, and he said, come over and do a session... And I remember staying over in Manchester that night because I couldn't get back to Hull, I mean, the same night. And he was house-sitting for somebody in the music industry. I can't remember what the story was, but we were both in this house uh, late at night. And I was thumbing through the record collection, and I pulled out a Nick Drake album. And I said, oh, I've just discovered this guy. I'm really into it. And Mark Radcliffe said, who's that? You know, and um, that's kind of how obscure he was at the time. But that, I, I, that um, where is it? I'll just put that delay on for that. This is Nick straight from, that rhythm is straight off a of Nick Drake song for North Wind Drive. Mm-hmm. 
the double on yeah, the thumb. Exactly. Yeah. It's like gear and stuff, something that you are particularly interested in. I mean, you, you know, it you've goes got your delay waves. pedals. Right. I'm not, I'm not an obsessive. Um, uh, I, I go in, in sort of waves of, of quite sort of manic enthusiasm when I need to achieve something. And um, once I get some bits of gear that, that do what I want, I'm happy to stick with them and I don't ask too many questions of yeah. them. I just sort of fiddle around with them and I, I don't read the manual very much. I just kind of like, <laughs> you know, get a sound that I like. It does what you need it to. Exactly. Yeah. How um, long did you keep the Evans Echo Pat for? Quite a long time. Um, I think I was still using it because I still used this guitar on the first on the first Everything But The Girl album. I was still, when I was playing... Um, <laughs> Uh, what is it? Uh, the beginning of you know the beginning of mm-hmm. each and every one, same guitar, same idea. That might not be the right. Might be down here. That's there. Oh, okay. The, um, I think there's maybe a sort of misconception that Everything But The Girl was a trip-up thing and it all sounded like the missing remix and stuff. But yeah. you were playing guitar right through those records. Yeah. Um, were you playing on stage a lot? Um, yeah, I mean, live, you know, I, I played predominantly guitar mm. right up until the last couple of albums. Yeah. I mean, once we started taking Walking Wounded and Temperamental out on the road that was very different yeah um because i'd done a lot of programming and a lot of samples and stuff keyboard based things but i you know i, I remember I, we would still do a version of, of missing where i was i had a guitar on and was standing at the keyboard and would play sort of both at the same time <laughs> so yeah because it's i mean the original the you know the 94 version of that the yeah. original version is so kind yeah. of guitar predominant isn't it it's, yeah. it's the driving rhythm it's the yeah. it's got the melody in there well even the, the the famous stabs on the Todd Terry mix they're just chopped up stabs of the original guitar okay overlaid with a you know couple of extra bits but yeah he used a lot of the bits of the original for, for the mix how were you with um, performing then so I mean you, you mentioned that first gig yeah. with um, with Matt and then the shows did get obviously much bigger as, as as your career went on and through everything but the girl. Is, yeah. is, is the performance side something that you've always enjoyed? I've always been very comfortable on stage. I've always really liked it. Mm-hmm. I, I like the whole occasion of a show. I love, I like the sound check. I love that moment when five minutes before the doors open and the stage is set. I really like walking through the venue, getting the atmosphere of the room, um... I look I look forward to it as that interchange I think between the audience and the performer that willingness to engage that is just essential to a great show um you know where the audience is basically leaning forward and saying fill me up with mm-hmm. stuff you know and the performer is prepared to do that I think that's really exciting when it when it works you know yeah, so, yeah. yeah I've always liked it I know that you know DJing has a performance element to it but it, is it the same interaction from the years when you were not playing sort of live instrumentation mm. and you were and you were DJing is it the same thing yeah I think so I mean I came to DJing quite late as everybody knows um it was actually during the recording of Walking Wounded I worked on a track with Howie B 
on one of the songs on that that record and we were doing some programming I think in my old home studio and he was thumbing through my record collection while we were having a cup of tea and he said oh, this is nice well, when are you next playing out uh-huh. and I said oh stop it I don't do any of that he goes well you should you've look got the these, collection look at these through, records yeah. and I was saying I've never really thought about it but he put the seed in my mind and I can remember I was watching Grandstand on a Saturday afternoon and it was really boring and I thought Mm, I need I need to do something else, and I thought I'm going to go and buy a pair of record decks and work out <laughs> what all this DJing stuff's all about. And I went down to a, uh, an old DJ centre in uh, Kentish Town, and I walked in and I just bought two turntables, a small Newmark mixer, and a set of headphones, and a couple of slip mats. No, no, I didn't buy the slip mats. That's another story. But I went home and I put two records, and I thought this can't be. How hard can this be? And I remember just thinking it was absolutely impossible. I could I could not work out how to beat match. And of course, it wasn't until I got the slip mats yeah. that I realised that you need to have one turntable spinning, you know, at full speed. I was trying to like wind it up into the next track all the time, and I could never make it work. But yeah, it took me a while to get it. But but you but yeah, you what, did. I mean, to 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 answer what you were what you were driving at, I mean. Yes, once I got a feel for it and realised um, that I, I could do it and was was into it, that, that way of being able to move an audience with pre-recorded pieces of music, you know, second-guessing the mood in the room, um, that sort of sense of uh, ritual about it all, I found that really exciting. And it was just like finding a new way to to share music with people. Mm. You know, it was like a it was like um an artist being given a new set of tools to work with, a painter who perhaps suddenly realizes, wow, I could use collage. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um and that's very much how I saw DJing. Um Did you miss guitar playing or was it not just yesterday's time, news no. kind of thing? I think I, I I I did fall out of love with guitar playing. I think like a, quite a few people did in the mid 90s. I think um you know, I started to get very interested in electronic music, the underground dance scene. Um, I loved uh, going to some of the early drum and bass clubs. It was really exciting to me. That sort of mix of, it was like sort of futuristic Latin music to mm. me, that kind of up-tempo, syncopated quality of drum and bass. I found that really exciting, going to see DJs like Fabio and and Doc Scott at the old uh, milk bar behind the Astoria. So I just, I just was excited by that as a different way of making music. You yeah. Know? yeah. But yeah. then, I mean, people think people might think, oh, that's a big leap. But if you go back through the history of everything but the girl, we were always making leaps on every record. Yeah. We were always looking for something new to say musically, whether it was using a an orchestra in Abbey Road on the third album um, or... Idlewild, which came after it, was me tentatively experimenting with drum machines and synths for the first time. Then we went to LA to work with a crack session band and an American producer to see what that would do to our music. You know, we were always looking for different ways to frame the songs, Mm. if you like, different technologies to use. So perhaps it wasn't, well, it wasn't a surprise to me. No, no, no. I I mean, even Amplified Heart has that blend where... It's got the core of what a lot of people think the Everything With The Girl original sound is, that kind of folky, jazzy, 
sound of the yeah. songs. But we were starting to work with John Coxon, you know, who's an electronic producer who went on to be in Spring Hill Jack, who were a great kind of experimental drum and bass duo. And we were doing break beats for songs like Troubled Mind and Get Me, working with samples. You know, the original backing track of, of Missing is a blend of synths and drum machines and acoustic guitars. It's like a kind of very gentle house track. Yeah, yeah, you know, sort of Balearic kind of quality exactly. to it yeah that's yeah. exactly what it is yeah so we were always looking for for new ideas i think we're gonna uh skip on to uh hendra yeah which came out in 2014 yeah your second record 31 years exactly. after your uh, yeah. after your debut and it saw you sort of go back to that singer songwritery sort of vein yeah working with bernard butler and I am kind of interested in the sort of build-up to that, where you've kind of getting your guitars out again and, and playing. It was like, oh, you know, Ben's, Ben's got his guitar, something might happen, or was it more of an absolute decision that you were going to do it? I think two things happened, coincidentally. Um, I was running out of... I just was running out of steam with DJing mm-hmm. and running out of steam with running Buzzing Fly, which had been my label throughout that period for about 10 years. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I was busy... As yeah, a DJ, yeah. I was being heavily booked, and I was flying out to places at weekends, um, New York, you know. Or I remember going to Australia for the weekend once, you know, like nutty yeah. DJ stuff, and then trying to run the label during the week, A and R, license contracts. You know, we had a little office in Camden at the time. We also had the family at home; mm-hmm. the kids were young. I mean, it was just a lot of work and it started to really wear me down and I just started to fall out of love with it I think and I needed a change and then I remember going to a party in the garden of Pete Perfides yeah um journalist who used to write for Time Out I mean everyone knows Pete um and he said to me uh while we were standing under a tree he said um do you ever think about playing playing guitar again and I said well, I've always played guitar a bit. He said, no, I mean, like like the really early stuff. I said, no, not really. And he goes, because I think a lot of people would love to hear that again. And I went, you sure? Uh-huh. And he went, yeah, all that, you know, North Marine Drive stuff. I went, cool, blimey, I've never really thought about it. And then that night, about 20 minutes later, I ran into Bernard Butler, mm-hmm. who was also at the party, who was a neighbour of Pete's. I mean, they lived almost on the same street. Um, and had quite an awkward conversation with Bernard while we sort of tiptoed round each other for the first time. And I know who you are, you know who I am, what you're doing. Talked a bit about football and the kids and the rain and, you know, sort of usual grumpy stuff. <laughs> but I remember going home that night and those two things stuck in my mind and I thought, maybe I should follow this up. And I went down to this studio, actually, because I was living in, just moved into this house. And started getting my guitars out again and playing a bit and realising I was there was a seed of, of, of interest in it again. And then I rang Bernard up and said, do you want to come over and, and have a jam? Yeah. And he'd broken his leg playing football and his wife dropped him off and he had to hobble down the stairs and he was in a bit of a grump. And actually the first time we played together, it was a bit of a disaster. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't really have any songs. Bernard was having a bit of a problem with the style of guitar he wanted to play. Um, and it sort of collapsed the afternoon and I thought, oh, that's not going to go anywhere. But then I came back down here and over the next, I think, couple of months I started to write the songs for Hendra. Mm. 
And once I had four or five written, I thought, I'm, I'm not going to let this go because I could really picture this sound with me doing the warm, suspended, jazzy stuff and Bernard doing the gnarly, distorted, bluesy stuff underneath. I thought it would be a really good sound. Absolutely. So I got him to come round and... Um, or maybe I went... I think actually I went to his studio in Hornsey and it clicked instantly. I played him a couple of tracks off a CD, I think, and then I played them live in his room to him and he just started playing along on his 355 and it just sounded great and I thought, no, this is this is really going to work. It's great that there was um, enough in that first meeting to yeah. make you do it again because you, you could just other, write it off. Exactly. I think the other... I'm going to switch guitars here, actually. Okay. Um, this is for those of you who can't see it um a 1973 uh, gibson dove acoustic um which i bought i think i bought um in the early 90s um at chandler's record shop in Kew, which sadly is no longer there and the first thing i ever played it on was um everything but the girls get me so it's been around quite a while and there was a rumor when i bought it that it was once belonged to Pete Seeger but I don't know if that was ever really true but it's a nice uh, I was told that in the shop it's a nice thought anyway um but the reason I've got it out and put it on my lap is it's uh one of the guitars I started playing on um on Hendra and the other thing apart from writing songs that was different about that record is I started to get into open tuning okay and that was the really big door that opened for me onto the last Two or three albums, and you haven't you haven't I sort of experimented a, with that a before. little bit on a couple of songs. I've done a drop D and all that kind of stuff. I think, in fact, get me mm-hmm. is a drop is a drop D tuning. Um, but I started to think, ah, oh, this is a new world, and I started to get really quite wild. And I used ended up using like eight, nine, ten different tunings <laughs> over the last couple of albums. Roadie's nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but this, I'm just going to switch this on down here. So this is. Um, this is the uh, the tuning I used for Golden Ratio, which was one of the first songs I wrote for that record. And it's... Um, so it's like a big D minor 9 kind of chord. D-A... Uh, D-A-C-F-C-E. Um, which isn't a tuning I don't think many people use. I think... I remember going through all Joni Mitchell's tunings once. I think she's used 52 different tunings. Wow. And I think I saw it on one of her songs. So um, anyway, that doesn't really matter. But anyway, I found this tuning. And the reason I thought I'd show it uh, here is because it sort of joins the worlds of North Marine Drive and Hendra. Because I was playing similar stuff that I played for for songs like Summer Into Winter, but with these open tunings and slightly different chords. So you get this kind of... um beautiful for a start but watching you play it like listening to it you would think it was one thing but watching you play it um such sh- s- simple shapes that you're playing just yeah. like a bar you know a one finger bar here or a, yeah a couple of fretted notes and then you get you get that which is well you probably wouldn't be able to create that with a standard tuning exactly and you it allows you to leave a lot of notes ringing 
it really fills out the sound. So you're right, a lot of the time I'm playing bars or, or two-finger shapes, but plucking four strings. So two are ringing and, and two are fretted. So you get that mixture of, you know, of, of tones, which I think is a lot of, you know, what my kind of playing on those songs is all about. And then slightly different variations. And basically, I don't really have any idea of the notes I'm playing. I, everything is learnt by shape now because I use all these different tunings. Yeah. And if I do any kind of soloing, I have to learn whole new scales. Um, so you just knock the soloing on the head then, really. So when I play <laughs> little licks, you know, and little things that you can play on, on little scales that you can memorise. But because I'm using so many different tunings on the shows now, it really is It's a question of learning by shape. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, like when Rex, my bass player, might say that bit when we go to the F minor seventh, I go, "Wait, what? There's an F minor seventh in this chord, and I've completely forgotten what key it's in." And I go, "Oh yeah, that shape there." You just numbered them, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when when Bernard came in and w- was was playing that, you know, the, the really nice yeah. kind of rolled off tone, yeah. sort of guitar parts, was he was he like in standard tuning? Yeah, get well, this, like, this is rub between this, the two. This is how we got it to work, and I, I give Bernard the credit for this. Because I would be sitting here going, well, that opening chord, it's like a D minor nine, but I've added the four and suspended the second or whatever. And he'd go, yeah, what, D minor? And I thought, well, yeah, if you like. But then he would just play kind of straight pentatonic stuff, and you know, straight D minor. And underneath what I was playing, it sounded amazing. Yeah. So he was playing quite sort of rootsy, traditional, you know, uh, ways of playing on a, on a standard tuning guitar, sometimes maybe a drop drop D occasionally, but the the combination of the two, you know, I play a lovely suspended A minor chord, and he would literally just play the ballsy A minor underneath it, and that growl against the beauty, if you like, is the kind of is where a lot of the tension comes, I think, in yeah. the music. And you toured, I mean, the, I saw the two of you just play. Um, I can't remember. It was at Village Underground. I don't know. Yeah. If you, did you have? Other band members? Oh, we, had, we had Martin drumming. It yeah. Was like two guitars and drums. It was an unusual lineup that um, night. And I saw, I think, was it St Pancras Old Church as well? And that yeah. was maybe just the two of you. Um, filled out so much kind of uh, space, though. You, you know, it wasn't like yeah. you were, it didn't feel stripped down or anything. It was, yeah. it was, um, it was perfect. Well, these days, I mean, I was talking about this just before with the tape started rolling, but, you know, I'm taking a lot of additional stuff on tour now a lot of kind of midi triggers and a different sonic effects to play under what i'm playing so on a song like that that i just played you get so you get these chords um and then i might put like a pad underneath it just off a foot switch like that and then play exactly the same underneath does it change pitch at all or is it no, just, that's just a just constant sits there on a loop 
and then on this song I've got a couple of chords as well that I trigger that I like uh, Wurlitzer chords mm -hmm. so when I get to this section uh, sorry uh, I play this underneath samples of somebody playing it as well i played those you yeah. played those okay well it was basically because there's there's a Wurlitzer part on the original which jim watson played and i wanted to just get a flavor of that on the live shows without having to have a keyboard player there every night so i just basically found a couple of suspensions that worked over some of the chords in the songs this one and put a delay on it and that one and all i'm doing is i'm just triggering them on a foot switch which goes to a, basically a mini sampler on stage. It's, yeah, I mean, you spend a lot of time looking at your feet. Uh, a bit, bit of tap dancing, yeah. <laughs> Turn that off now, but yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, looking ahead, you've got um, a new record coming. Yes. And um, a load of live shows, which is what you've been working all this out for, I guess. Yeah. Um, what can you tell me about the... I've heard three songs, I think, from the new, the oh, new right. record. So it's... What have I heard? Um, uh, Irene. Yes. Um, sunlight follows... Follows, follows Sunlight follows the night. And Balanced on a Wire. Yes. Right, okay. So, yeah, they're the, the, the three that I've heard. Um, quite a lot of piano on there. Um, yes. I mean, the majority of the record um, is this idea of a... Um, a, well, I started calling it a future retro trio, which sounds a bit pretentious, but it kind of, in my mind, sums up what I'm trying to do. I want—I had this idea of a, of a piano trio, quite traditional, um, upright piano, double bass, nice, big, fat 1965 Ludwig drum kit, okay. you know, playing as an old-fashioned trio, but supplementing that sound with something contemporary. Yeah. So we ended up hybridising the drum kit and we're now using like 808 kick drums and kind of uh, dub delays um, from Roland bar triggers, which are all played alongside the real drums. So you get this kind of hybrid electronic acoustic drum kit. And then I started to build textures underneath um, underneath the trio. I started to go online onto online uh, audio archives. There are public online audio archives, places like Freesound. And I started to grab bits of audio and chop them up and put them underneath the, the music we were making as this kind of atmospheric sort of patina underneath what we were doing. And Freesound's an amazing resource. It's basically anyone can upload anything. Uh, and you get and people often leave messages, which is very, very sweet. And some of them you can grab free. That's all under a Creative Commons license. Some things you can grab for free. Some things you have to credit people. Sometimes you have to pay a royalty. Mm -hmm. But like a guy will say, tried to finish this techno track last night. I couldn't get anywhere with it. But I found this nice pad, you know, and he uploads this lovely kind of pad sound that he's created. And he goes, use it if you want. Oh, nice. And you can just use it. Right. So there's all this going on, and it's quite collaborative, very kind of sherry, yeah. which I like about it. What did you, what have you taken, sort of just sort of um, sound beds and things? A, a ton of stuff. Right. I mean, the whole of the record has a lot of texture from that. Mixed with, I was using a lot of my old Roland Juno 106, which I recently had serviced and fell back in love with. 
and started to do lots of sort of bespoke uh, synth programming on it. I didn't. There are no uh, sort of Pro Tools uh, presets or mm -hmm. plugins on the record. Maybe like one or two we used in an emergency when we couldn't find anything else we wanted. But everything is kind of quite hand tool. It's chopped up bits of audio, right? Um, or as I say, sort of unique patches I was creating on the Juno. And uh, Storm Damage is the record, yes. and it's out at the end of January. A end of January. And there are a couple of um, guitar guitar tracks on there, which I, I, I really like. One actually is, is one that we've released already, um, Irene, and that's got Alan from Lowe okay. playing on it as well. Um, so that's a nice little combination of guitar sounds. Are there any other people on the record? Well, basically just the trio. Right, that's okay. Rex and Evan, um, who used to play in the Neil Cowley trio. Actually. Oh, right. Yeah. Because guests on your records have been quite at a certain level as well, you know. Uh, <laughs> so Bernard obviously played a lot with you. And um, Dave Gilmore played on the... Uh, David on Gilmore song. did play, yes. That was a complete... Um, it was just by chance. I was a, a week away from starting to record Hendra, and um, I was up in town at a some book launch party because Tracy's in the book world now with all her journalism and, and, and writing. Um, and uh, Polly Sampson was there, mm -hmm. the novelist, and she's married to David Gilmore. So we were like the two musicians in the room in this um, at this sort of publishing party. Um, and someone had the bright idea of introducing the two of us. So I started talking to David Gilmore, which was, you know, quite surreal. Um, <laughs> and then... We'd only been talking about five minutes, and he said, um, do you want to hear my demos? I went, what? And he said, do you want to hear my demos? I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm working on a new record, and I'd love some input. And I went, yeah, okay. And I kind of left it at that. But then he texted me a couple of days later and invited me down to his um, place down on the south coast. And I went down on the train, and I spent a day with David Gilmore listening to his music in his studio and having lunch with him and thinking... How nice is this yeah. bloke? You know, he's just like um, chatting about music and everything. So, yeah, so then I went back into the studio a couple of weeks later to start recording Hendra, and I got to the levels. And after I'd laid down my main guitar part, I just thought he, he would sound fantastic on it. So I texted him and said, Do you want to play? And he went, Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, it sounds great. And there was like no managers, no big fuss, you know. And it was all done in a few days, and that was it, you know, very, very casual. Um, that isn't the first time you've met him, though, is it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yes, I'd forgotten that. Well, you're right. You must have read that somewhere. I, yeah, I, I've, I've come across that. Yeah. The, the, uh, the sort of the first meeting. Well, when um, I was a, before. Yeah, when I was about, I think I must have been about 13 or something, I went on a holiday with my mum and dad to a Greek island, and... Um, he was he was there on the beach playing playing backgammon at the beach cafe and um i was kind of beside myself because you know they were just like superstars yeah. and i recognized him and i was starting to get into music and boys at school had copies of you know dark side of the moon and everything mid to late 70s yeah, yeah it must yeah, be yeah perfect. and um the guy he was playing backgammon with left and david gilmore was left sitting on his own at this table at this beach cafe and I had the absolute audacity to go up to him and say could I finish the game of backgammon with him and I was only about 13 
I didn't even know what backgammon was, but well, it was just a chance to sit it. down. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and I'm yeah. sure he's really grateful to have someone to uh, sit opposite. Yeah, I think he left pretty quickly. Right, actually. okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Looking at more guitars here, so we've got a beautiful um, Candy Apple Red Jaguar on the wall. Yes. That um, was bought at um, Manny's Guitar Shop in New York okay. in the mid-80s. Right. Yeah, and I played that a bit on... Some of the mid-80s, everything but the girl stuff. Gretches seem to be your thing, though. Um, well, the one you're looking at there on the wall is um, a 1959 uh, Smoke Green Gretsch single anniversary. Right. I played that a lot with Bernard on tour. And then recently, I just bought an almost identical 2017 uh, reissue of the double anniversary, which has got the two pickups. I bought that because I started to get nervous taking the 1959 out on the road. It was also hard to keep on tune, mm-hmm. but I love the sound of it. So I bought the, the 2017 reissues because they're really well made, these reissues. Yeah. And it's got tuning locks on the headstock, which makes it a lot easier for keeping in tune when you're playing live. And the extra pickup gives me a bit of flexibility so I can flick to the treble pickup when I want to get a bit noisy with the trio sometimes. How many guitars would you take out on the road with you for a tour? I mean, 10, ten alternate tunings to pick from. There's going to be a few. Well... I try and travel as lightly as possible, you know, because when we don't do big shows, you know, it's not like we're doing huge ballrooms or arenas anymore. We do small clubs and I like to try and stay quite compact. So I'll probably take, I'll only take a couple of acoustics and a couple of electrics, Mm. but then I take a really good guitar tech and I structure the set so that we can keep switching the tunings and handing guitars over during the set. Um, I don't, I don't tend to stand there in front of the audience tuning up if I can help it because I know that's really boring for the audience so I tend to get the guy off stage to put it into the next tuning and hand it to me and a thin line telly with two humbuckers as well yes beautiful so that's the um is it like the seven like early 70s 74 yeah so that's 73 actually 73 okay yeah um again that's quite a recent acquisition I got that from Charlie Chandler's shop down in Hampton Wick I actually went down there to get a Sunrise acoustic guitar preamp mended and it was sitting in the shop and um, while I was waiting I made the mistake of sitting down and playing it <laughs> and thinking oh this sounds amazing so um, yeah this is um, another of the tunings on Hendra which I used for the levels because we were just talking about it and it's a deluxe reverb that you're playing that you're playing through is this what you play on stage? well I've re- I've Lately, actually, the last few years I've been using a car rambler, which I really, really like, but I had a big problem with it. Um, the, um, the output transformer blew up, and I had to get one sent over from America. And while it was being mended, I thought, well, I need a proper backup. So I bought, this is a very new purchase we're looking at now, which is the, the, the deluxe reverb, um, which is an amp I'll often rent. If I'm, if I'm travelling and I need to rent backline, I usually rent a 65 reissue Fender Deluxe Reverb. They sound very similar to the cars, um, so I'm I'm rather fond of that. Um, So this is another of the tunings um, on... So that's... um, So it's D... It's like Dad-Gad, but then the G is dropped to an E, so it's like D-A-D-E-A-D. And then I bar it on the second fret... Um. Mm-hmm. 
kind of evocative of that song it doesn't really sound like it you know a very distinctive tuning like that it can only really be one thing if you um, yeah if you know the song taken you to find those shapes do you think in that tuning um i don't know you just you know once you find a tuning that you like and you find the opening couple of chords then you're inspired and you're just all over the guitar trying to find more and but i think i'm always trying to add to them you know like on 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 some of the stuff i just played just there is not on the original it's additional little figures and shapes that i found the more and more i've played it live you know you and other little shapes stay in your memory and you think oh I can go from that to that and yeah yeah I yeah. really wanted to ask you about um you're going to make me lonesome when you go on the oh, yeah. Marine drive because when I first heard that record I hadn't heard Bob Dylan's version so oh, I thought that you it thought was I'd him. written I thought it, like you'd written it. other people yeah. yeah unfortunately not the best song on the album is not by me <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think there was a massive leap between any of them. I just thought, what you know, what an absolutely wonderful song. And I was just sort of interested when you when we started talking. You said that you didn't set out when you were learning to play guitar to learn loads of other people's songs. And you, but yeah. there's a few very sort of distinct covers that you've done over, yeah. over the years. You know that one particularly the Dylan cover. I don't want to talk about it again. The first version of the song that I heard, so I thought that was a right um, an original of yours. And then I heard Rod Stewart singing it. And then, yeah. and then I heard Danny Finally Witten singing it. Yeah, and then the I core. got back to yeah, Danny yeah. Witten. Yeah. And then, um, so is is it just a sort of, you, you like a song so you learn it? Or did you, you know, have you built up a kind of armor, armory of songs that you like? Um, I don't know. Again, it's I sort of go in phases. I mean, Everything But The Girl had a period at the beginning of the 90s um, where we did quite a few covers and was a thing that we did for a couple of years. Um, we did that record called the Covers EP, and we did cover versions of things like Time After Time yeah. and Tougher Than the Rest. Um, and we did some tours where we'd play a lot of covers. But it's not, as I say, it's not something I I spend a lot of time time doing. I think if a song excites me, I remember I heard recently there was a song. It, I'm only saying this because it, it's leapt into my mind by Chris Cohen, mm. um, and there was just like a chord change in the verse and a bar length that I really, really liked. And that's, I just went, I went, sat at the piano, and once I'd found out that little section of the song, that's all I needed. Right. I didn't need to learn the whole song, didn't need to learn all the lyrics. I just wanted to know how he did that particular move from that chord to that chord. So that probably stops me from learning lots of songs. You've, you've gone back to the original Gretsch that you bought all those years ago. Do you, um, do you still play it out? Do you still do you still play it on stage? Um, I don't play it so much anymore because it doesn't stay in tune very well and it doesn't have much versatility on stage. I think if I was 
if I had room in the van and I knew that I was going to do a section on st- on stage that was going to you know maybe be three or four of the older songs, I might take it with me. But sometimes I'll just play it on the newer Gretsch because it has a slightly it has a similar sound, and yeah. a bit richer and stays in tune more. So I'll just play a blast of that soon as you ask. Oh, thank um, you. Hold on a minute. Oh, how does it go? Uh, yes. whole style it's just all from John Martin that slapping on the offbeat against the strings so it picks up on the pickup so you get it yeah and it catches on the delay so the audience hears it as the rhythm of the song that's just basically the basis of so much of my early playing And the, the rhythm shape is a kind of bastardization of bossa nova. It's not proper, which is bossa nova is. Uh, I play more on the. It's like a an abbreviated bossa nova, right. really, which I just sort of came up with myself. And that was Ben Watt on star guitar. I was so pleased when he said he'd come on, and absolutely thrilled with how it worked out. And you know he was so generous with his time, and I felt as if he properly indulged me that day at his studio. So I'd like to say a really big thank you to him. This was recorded last year before the album came out and when I'd only heard three songs, but I've now heard the rest of it and uh, it's a fantastic record. He's on tour from February the 27th, beginning in Leeds, ending in London on March the 14th. Tickets and information can be found at benwatt.com. At the start of the interview, Ben mentioned growing up with lots of siblings in a musical household and a band leader dad. That's not even half the story, so if you're interested in finding out more about that, then may I recommend Romany and Tom, the book he wrote about his parents' lives. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email starguitarpodcast at gmail.com and you can follow me on Twitter at starguitarpod. I'll also be posting pictures of all the guitars you've heard here on Instagram at starguitarpodcast, so please follow me over there. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the others, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving a rating or a review too. Anyway, that's all for this week. I'll be back with another episode next week where my guest will be Barry Cadogan of Little Barry. Until then, bye-bye.